host, Dmitry Filipovich. Welcome to the Hockeypedia Cast. My name is Dmitry Filipovich, and joining me in studio is my good buddy, Kevin Woodley. Kevin, what's going on, man? Not much. It's the new year. We're we're headed towards, I guess, I, like, I cringed when I was just about to say, like, the All-Star break, but that means the All-Star game, and I think the goalie in me automatically has to cringe at the thought of the All-Star game, but other than that, everything's great. Well... It's always great when I have you in studio. I should say we have to acknowledge off the top. It's it's a pretty tough day in the world of hockey, right? With the news that came out today, and so we're certainly not gonna gonna delve into that today, just because that's not really what I do on this show. Uh, we try to provide a little reprieve and have some fun here and talk about hockey in an informative way in terms of what's happening on the ice. And so hopefully we can provide that for people here. But I did just want to acknowledge that because I don't think it feels weird to get here, and I and I love talking to you about all these off-the-cuff, outside-the-box ideas. We're going to be making Dragon Ball Z references and talking about made-up goalie stats, right? But there's, like, actual important stuff going on, and I think a lot of people who listen to this show are are having a tough time right now, and so I just wanted to acknowledge that, and, um, you know, we're going to try to provide some reprieve here and, and have uh, some fun. So Well said. Um, we've got some topics from the Discord that I want to get into with you. Our listeners certainly delivered, and... Here's a fun one to start us off with because I, I I love pitching you on these ideas without giving you any notice because then I can see your sort of spontaneous reaction. I can see the wheels turning in your head as you're thinking about the it. Then, get going, eh? And then we can start talking through it, right? So depending on how much coffee you've had as well, sometimes that engine rears pretty quickly. Sometimes it takes a bit of time. It might so be a little slower today. We'll see today how it goes. So Dr. Sanchez asks, goalies seem like a bit of a crapshoot at the draft. Would it be better for them to be drafted a few years later in their development or would not having access to NHL resources hurt them more than it helps? Oh, that's a great question. And I hadn't even thought of the second part because my easy answer to the first was going to be, yeah, of course, like you get to see, I mean, the reality is you look at junior leagues in Canada, they're typically not even starting by the age you need to make a pick on them. You don't get to see them all that, all that often. And so much of the position is about experience um, in terms of being able to sort of, you know, to make the Mitch Corn reference, you know, goaltending is not a game of, of, of shots. It's a game of patterns. And to put those patterns together takes time and experience. And most of them don't have that much at that point. So a longer look would certainly help and sort of see how they mature and how they handle. Because so much of the game is between the ears as much as between the pipes. And we just have such limited viewings by that point. Um, would they, you know, I'm, I'm going to say No. I'm going to say that it would be better to the second part. Like, would would they lose out on that development time? Because the reality of that development time for most of them, you know, in the two years after the draft, what, a development camp once a summer, check-in from the development coach. And some, listen, some organizations do a great job of keeping tabs. You know, I know... I know others do this. I'm not singling out Vancouver as the only one. There are others, but I know, for example, here in Vancouver, their development coach, uh, Marco Terranius, doesn't spend all his time with the American Hockey League team. When the AHL team travels, not every time, but there are times where he then takes that time to, for example, go to Prince George um, and and work with uh, the young man that they drafted a couple of years ago. And of course, his name's escaping me because I have not had enough coffee today. Um, but you know, you find those windows to work with your college or go go see how they're doing, talk to them about their game progressions, what you're seeing, what you'd like to see change. Work with the goalie coaches that they're working with. But I think for the most part, those touches are so small that you would have less misses by having a few more years to see before you picked as opposed to the development path starting because of those moments. Well, I think historically it's been established that aging curves for skaters and goalies are wildly different, right? We know through a lot of data now that skaters, especially forwards, peak at a very young age, right? Kind of in their physical prime when they still got the speed and they can utilize it most effectively. And so if you're waiting until you're getting them into the NHL by 23, 24, 25 years old, you're missing on a lot of highly productive seasons. For goalies, we know that that typically comes later for a variety of reasons. I guess my question for you is, as the game and the product in the NHL changes, right, with the physical demands of, like, how fast the game is, how much more east-west action there is now, how much teams are attacking off the rush and kind of, I think, forcing goalies into more athletic movement, I guess, right, to get from post to post or, or to try to cover a certain amount of ground, if that's going to change as well in terms of whether it's going to be reasonable or optimal to ask a 34-year-old goalie 
to to keep up with the physical demands of the position where it might have it's always certainly been difficult especially on your hips and your lower body like just getting in knees just getting up and down that often and having to do so like that like it clearly takes its toll over time right but i think i I wonder if like we hear so much about how you know edges and and movement in terms of going post to post for goalies is becoming such a valuable skill that would seem to me like it would carry over similar to skaters where earlier in your career you'd probably excel more at that and and rely on it more than you might later on in uh in your 30s yeah no i guess from a physical standpoint um you know you could probably make the same arguments in terms of peak um it's just that the game is so different right like the skilled forward can go out there and especially now in today's nhl have opportunities to show off that skill uh and the mistake he makes mentally uh, whether it's a read on the back check or positioning along the boards or not chipping a puck out, not being where he's supposed to be because of a mental mistake, doesn't always end up in the back of the net. And it's the mental mistakes, and, and that's where I talk about the experience and the play reading and the evolution that comes into it. Um, takes a little more time, typically, for goaltenders to sort of get comfortable, especially at the NHL level. Now, that said, like that's sort of just in part because they don't get the reps at early ages, like even in junior, right? Like the 19 and 20 year old starters, 17 and 18 year olds don't typically get those reps. So they're behind right away in terms of being able to make those reads and get opportunities to get that experience. Um, So I, I mean, I'd be curious to see, like we're seeing this pendulum swing a little bit, not to the extremes of 18 and 19 year olds, but I think we talked about it last time and I'm seeing increasing examples like, forever and ever we were told the nhl was not a development league and then the players came in and had young skill and talent and and scoring you know abilities that you couldn't ignore now i've had coaches tell me and and lindy ruff even i asked him this question like not just goalie coaches like hey is this now a development league for goaltenders and the answer is yes because they don't have a choice in a lot of cases right whether it's salary cap or just a a scarcity of proven experienced guys or just the potential of the young guy being uh, more valuable to you as an organization than the veteran who maybe has already started that aging curve and has the experience but physically can't keep up, we are seeing the NHL become a development league for goaltenders, guys getting opportunities to learn on the job that weren't there even three, four years ago. Well, I would argue there's just, it's also out of necessity because there's no alternative. Like, I remember, I think back to the conversation we had maybe a couple times ago where we were talking about when Jack Campbell got sent to the AHL, right, and this question of, all right, it makes sense, the mental reset and sort of just getting away from the NHL and everything that entails and just trying to get your game back on track, right? But the issue is that you're all of a sudden you're facing significantly different level of competition in terms of shooter talent, in terms of the way teams are playing, how fast it is. I think the schedule as well, right? Where oh, it's for a the game of mistakes part, too down there, right? Like, And so you can't read clean off a game where everything is a mistake. Not everything, but there's a lot more offense created off mistakes, whereas the NHL guys are typically where they're supposed to be. That's a lot tougher game to process for a guy who's already been playing in the NHL and his reads are based on that level of sort of talent and, and and execution consistency compared to what you get in the American League. Right. And it makes sense to me when a goalie is 18, 19 and they just got drafted and they're coming out of major junior or even a little bit later and they've had a few years of college experience under their belt. I think that's so different from the pro game that getting some some reps and some experience at that level makes sense to me in terms of like the transition to the NHL. But for goalies that are coming from let's say Europe if if especially for you know, high pedigree goalies. Like I think of a Yaroslav Askarov, for example, and obviously it's a big adjustment coming from Europe to North America and learning the language and acclimating yourself and all that. Like I get why the Predators, even if they didn't have UC Soros, would probably want to take it slowly with getting him ready to, for this level. But I, I wonder, like, preparing in the AHL, I don't know for a goalie if it really gets you ready to f- – step into the net and face eight shots from Austin Matthews the next night. Like, I, yeah, I, I don't... No, I don't it's, it's, a, it's, it's a really good point. It's almost apples and oranges, right? But, but I think it's also apples and oranges from some of the leagues in Europe. Like, the style of play, things you get away with as a goaltender over right. there, the amount of space on, on in the leagues that are using the bigger ranks, like, the time... Like, so it is tough. Like, where do you find that spot? And, you know, I'll give you the example. Like, like look at Dustin Wolf. Like, has he got anything left to prove in the American Hockey League? Like, of course, you're always trying to evolve and continue to get better. 
But as long as Calgary's like grinding for a playoff spot and, and both the other two guys are healthy and, and, and again, Vladar after a slow start actually really picked up. I got to give him credit. Like the start was early in the year. I was like, man, how much longer can they leave Wolf in the minors? And didn't mean it to be pointedly critical of, of Vladar, but it wasn't a great start for him. He's, he's picked it up. But so if you're the Flames, it's like, and we know this guy is going to be a part of our future. We believe he's going to be an NHL goalie, but when the hell are we going to find a time to let him learn on the job? Because there is that element of it. Yeah, I don't think there's necessarily a right answer. I just think of, and, and the Ar- Ar- Askarov one, right? Because he started slow last year, like in his first however many games in the AHL, and then I think he had a really good second half, and this year he's like a 922 save percentage in, in Milwaukee playing for their AHL affiliate. And, and I will say the one thing, like there's a more direct play in both the AHL. There's, there's, there are more similarities in terms of some of the styles of attack. Maybe the execution isn't there and the skill level of the shooters isn't there, but there are more similarities between the NHL and the American Hockey League in terms of how everything is funneled to certain areas, mm-hmm. off the boards, from behind the net, the way attacks originate. Frankly, then there are when I watch KHL hockey. And so in his case, as much as it's not the perfect adjustment, I think it's probably a necessary adjustment. And we hear that for other you know established pros in Europe. Like there is this, you know, difference that requires some time to get acclimatized to like everything just is on top of you so much quicker here than it is in sweden or switzerland or russia and there's just so much less time and you have to you have to be your save selections in terms of not you don't have to be a blocker but you have to be in a just fill space mentality more often and sooner than you do over there where everything is pass 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 and you have an ability to set square and react um, there are times when you're just trying to make sure you've got the bottom of the ice sealed and as much of the top covered as you can because everybody's just funneling crap to the net and trying to shovel it home, and that's way more prevalent here than it is there. It is, but I guess the question from a team-building perspective for me, like when it comes to contract time or extension time, right? I, I, like, I think Askarov, his ELC is up after next season, and how many, ga- how many games of NHL experience is he going to have at that point? And then, obviously, he'll still have RFA rights and for years down the line, so the Predators aren't up against the clock or anything. But if they sign him to a two-, three-year bridge deal and he's still not playing a max amount of games, then all of a sudden you come up to a point where you have to make a really big financial decision with pretty limited available information in terms of feeling like certain about how good this guy is. We always talk about how volatile performance is the position and how, all right, you can have 15, 20 good games. Can you do that? three, four years in a row where you're playing 40, 50, 60 games potentially even. And until you see that, you don't really know, yet teams are getting into this spot where you're all of a sudden dealing with a 25-year-old goalie with very limited sample size, and you're trying to figure out how much to commit to him and whether he's going to be your starter or whether you should look elsewhere. It's, it's all, You're doing yourself a bit of a disservice, I guess, in terms of like accumulating information to make an educated decision. Yeah, and at the same time, like you said, like we're, like the, if you're grinding for a playoff spot, do you right? Can you afford to throw him in there? If, you know, if you, like I, the Wolf example, right? Like I believe he's ready to be an NHL goalie, but there obviously there's some growing pains, and and especially again, we've talked about Calgary. Like it's taken them a while to start to find their legs defensively as they you know made some changes to how they defend in their own end. Um, you know, Markstrom's like I, I know last night gets beat on the deflection late in the game, and it's a costly one for them, but like. You know, heading into that game, led the league and goal saved above expected in part because the environment was so tough. So you're throwing Wolf in there. It's like they're, they're at the end of the day, there's no perfect answers. Like it's it's that's the thing. It's like it's like breaking down video with these guys. Like there'll be times where I'm doing our pro reads where we're watching saves, and they'll be like, oh, I didn't like that. Like, yeah, I made the save. I got there, but here's what I I think I could have done better when they're reviewing you know film with me. And the inevitable answer that comes back as we go back and forth is like, like, that's fine because the game's not perfect and you can't be perfect as a goaltender. And I think the same thing applies to, you know, how we get these guys ready for the NHL. There is no one size fits all solution. I like the teams. Like I like, I know Buffalo's come under a lot of scrutiny, but teams and they're not the first but that use the american hockey league as a chance to keep a guy playing even though he's on the nhl team sending him back for a weekend if you know he's not starting that game on a saturday night rather than have him sit on the bench um columbus did it i'm trying to think of who they did it with, with Tarasov, I believe, yeah, right? yeah it might have yep. been with him um they did it before as well I, i'm trying to jeez 
brain cramp on who they did it with. Corpus um, Allo, I think. I think it was Corpus. Yeah, yeah. Back when they had Bob And Nashville started. did it with the, I mean, we talk about Nashville. Nashville did that with Soros, right? right? So there are different ways you can find to sort of try and bridge that gap. But at the end of the day, as it becomes a development, it's a lot easier for a team that's not in the playoff race to treat it like a development position for a young goalie than it is a team that's kicking and screaming to get in. Did you see these this interview that uh, first it was Connor Hellebuck's dad on one of Big Sports Talk, and yep. then it was Connor Hellebuck. Is this right the eleven year old curve stick curve thing? Ten year old, yep on on uh, on NHL Network, and yep. this was the so Connor Hellebuck's dad tells a story about how they're like at a at a at a shop essentially looking at sticks, right? And 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 Connor's just looking at player skater sticks, sticks as yep. opposed to the goalie ones, and his dad is asking him why, and he's like look at this blade, like, what do you think is going to happen when a shot comes off this one and him wanting to essentially study and then, like, memorize all these so that he could prepare himself for what was to come off the shot, off the blade, right? And then he gave this interview where he was talking, and it's a, it's a concept you and I have spoken about quite a bit over the years where goalies in scramble positions and, and it's sometimes, like, just trying to get back to the middle of the net because shooters will generally, even at this level, just try to get it there. And he had a really interesting comment there. I actually wrote it down just so I didn't like paraphrase it or miss something. He said, in those split-second moments, we already have an idea of where that puck's going because if you're trying to read a puck in the NHL or react to a puck in the NHL, you're already too late. And so we've spoken quite a bit about this and this concept of like how to prepare for a shot, I guess, and especially now this cat-and-mouse game between goalie and, and shooter and, and shot selection and save selection where you're trying to read it off the blade, but now these guys are coming into the league with years of experience already where how to disguise since it since a young bit. age they've been yeah. watching YouTube videos and then practicing in the backyard with you know tucking it in and then all of a sudden last second letting it rip and you have no chance to really prepare for it I'm just so fascinated by this and I should say one thing that like Hellebuck is at the extreme end of this example and I think the anecdote from his dad which was just awesome um, like tells you why like not everybody is like this not everybody like Hellebuck reads blades and releases and and more than that hands hips uh like he reads everything reminds me a little bit of craig anderson who used to not watch the puck in a shootout because he could tell you where it was going based on everything else so he felt like the shooters were giving him enough clues that he didn't always have to watch the puck and he used to do drills where he would purposely like he'd even tell like always got to warn the coach when you're going to do this like if I'm going to learn how to read a release without becoming too puck focused I need to see what the hands do I need to so Pick a time in practice where, you know, hey, coach, don't worry if a bunch of pucks go in here. I'm trying to learn something. And, like, nobody read the game like Craig. And I would argue with that, that Connor's in that same level, that same stratosphere. And I've had guys tell me, I, Eric Comrie and Loren Brassois were both, like, they've done pro reads with us where we break down video and they're like, you have to get Connor Hellebuck doing this. And we did this summer. So, you know, shameless plug, ingoalmag.com. If you want to see what this actually looks like when he watches video, I have two-on-ones where he is telling me that the guy is shooting and sometimes even where, and it's not even at the top of the circles. Like, he's not worried about a pass because he's already read, based on body language, what the guy's showing him where this is going. He is an incredibly intelligent goaltender. Do they all think the game or study the game or do the work? You know, we talk about looking at all those stick blades. To that degree, no. Like, that that's the reality. Everybody has different... Some rely more on technique than they do play reading. Like... Helly's just, he's a special breed. I think that's why you see the results he's having. Um, and yeah, this is, this is what goes into it, right? Like this is, and this is why in this market here in Vancouver, when people got all over Demko about a tough looking William Nylander shot that actually deflected off Carson Susie's stick. And they're like, you can react. That's the, it hit the stick around, I think the hash marks or maybe inside the circle. You can still react to that. It's like, no, 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 no. Hold on. If you aren't reacting to the initial shot before it even leaves Nylander's blade, you're getting beat in this league. So you're not just reacting to the deflection. You're having to stop your original reaction and then go back the other way. And the reality is at that point, you might be able to move again. And that's why I think it looked awkward because he started to try to go the other way. But unless it hits you, you're in trouble. And that's why I am the, like, I hate to give Don Cherry a plug, but stop sticking your bloody stick in the lane. Mm. Let us have a clean look from the outside. We'll handle it. Well, your biggest nightmare then as a goalie must be that new David Pasternak move that he's done a few times in the shootout. And I'm not talking about the one where he got a lot of flack for it against Colorado, I believe, where he just tried to like oh, you're gonna quick have to shot it. Educate me here. Well, he did it to UC Soros and Ilya Sorokin, Dope. two pretty good goalies, I think. And yeah. it's in the shootout, right? So you're not even necessarily dealing with the threat of 
all right, is he going to pass this or is he going to go around the net? Like, you know, right. a shot is coming within a certain period of time, right? Like you, you can't go backwards. So it, it has to come within a few seconds. And he like keeps the puck away from his body and doesn't show you the blade at all. So you can't really even see what's going on with his stick. And then he just absolutely hammers it. And it, it, it's it, the whip on it is nasty, but there's also absolutely zero tell in terms of if you're looking at the blade and you're saying, all right, I've got some sort of inclination on at least where this puck is going to go. Other than, I guess, if he does it enough times and then a pattern emerges in terms of like, right. all right, it's going to go in this yeah. quadrant of the net. Then he'll just Then I can prepare. Back. Otherwise, then, yeah, then he'll just do something else <laughs> yeah. to, to adjust, right? Hey, you know what it reminds me of? A conversation with Ryan Walter to go way back to my early days covering the Canucks about Mike Bossy. Go watch Mike Bossy's shot. He used to sort of, instead of having his hands out front and his stick wherever, you know, the goalie could see it, he used to really have it behind him, mm, according to right. Wally, and sort of hide it and come through it. And, you know, one of the, you know, arguably, in my mind, greatest goal scorers of all time, and you... You know, we're, we talk about deception now. You look at how long ago that was, and he used to hide those releases on the goalies by sort of making sure he kept that blade behind him as he wound up rather than holding it out for all to see. So, um, you know, some of these things have existed for a long time. We just weren't necessarily looking for them. I'm actually, I remember hearing that story and then being surprised that more guys didn't do it in that whole sort of generation. And, but the reality is, right, for the longest time, and I've said this before, players just spent the summers getting bigger, stronger, and faster. It's like the Olympics while goalies were working on skills. And now that that pendulum has swung towards the players also working on skills, man, moves like what you just described by Pasternak, like there's just going to be new stuff. It's never been harder. I said this before, and goalies have told me this position's never been harder in terms of trying to keep up with offense. But what you were saying about Hellebuck in terms of sort of the uniqueness of like that extreme, right, with this like example and the anecdote of it. I remember you also talking though about like this next generation of Devin Levi and his utilization of, of VR and stuff to prepare for this stuff as well, right? Like I, I it, just in terms of obviously athleticism and, and, and save selection and all that stuff, but I think in terms of like going that extra step to work with your equivalent of a skills coach, I guess, in terms of like the fine-tuning little details like that, I imagine that will become more of a norm for, for goalies who are like 12 years old right now. Yeah, they're not going to have Pasternak's shoot-up move on there just yet, but yeah. like even the mechanics of how you watch a shot, right? Like we've learned a lot about, you know, we've learned like there's been studies like old ones like quiet eye and, and how to sort of the, the key to focus. We've learned a lot about the need for binocular vision. Um, we talk about it, which head trajectory, the idea of looking through the, the center of the socket and how it'll, if you do it the right way, it should set up biomechanics that allow you to stay on a release longer before having to open up or, or ideally not open up at all as you move into a save rather than the old days, you know, the old like tilt a whirl, big glove save coming behind their ear that, you know, if you if you were to really break it down, it's like you're not squaring on the puck with your glove. You're pulling it in a parallel path to the puck. You're actually making it harder for yourself to intercept it and catch it just from a straight geometry standpoint. And you're pulling your torso and, and basically most of your body out of the path of the puck if it were to happen to hit something. Like now, like we've studied this from the simplicity of that obvious description I just had of what an old windmill glove save used to look like to the actual biomechanics and vestibular function and how the brain and eyes work to make sure we can stay on a release longer and move our body in a way that closes down on it rather than open up the space the way an old windmill glove save would. So there's the studying, there's the, you know, reading the releases, there's, there's the art of those things. And then there's also this science that has been at a, you know, is, is arriving at a level, you know, frankly, where the only equivalent I can think of in sports is like a golf swing where we're breaking down, like, you know, every little bit of the mechanics to, and the body mechanics to optimize how we move as goaltenders. And now the irony is I had this fantastic conversation with Elias Patterson this, just this past week in, in anticipation of the hardest shot contest about the same things. Mm. And, how he has changed how he shoots. And again, the analogy is golf and golfers training for swing speed. And I'm at, you know, like, cause you know, we think like, oh, do you get bigger and stronger to get a harder slap shot? And it's no, it's all fast twitch. And how can I, how fast can I clear the hips and how am I loading? And it's all about training muscles for rotational speed to unleash that slap shot. Not about getting big forearms and big pipes. Like sure. It doesn't hurt, you know, sort of that man strength helps, yep. but he's training the same way a golfer would to an extent 
to make sure all the muscles are there to set up load and just explode rotational force through the hips and deliver that to the puck. I think he said he hits it seven or eight inches behind the puck, wants to get the right whip. So the hands like a golf swing, you want the hands ahead of the shaft and it creates a bit of that whip through that seven or eight inches. Then it launches in his words, like a catapult at the end, like, they're now doing that same type of work on their shot that goalies have been doing to get in the way of it for a long time. So it's, it is cat and mouse. It's fun to hear these anecdotes. I love when guys are willing to sort of open up and, and talk about the amount of work that goes into it. Cause the, the, I'm a, I'm a, I think Petey even called me a geek. Um, <laughs> and I said that, Hey, Johan Hedberg once called me a goalie geek and he said it should, it should be worn as a badge of honor. So I'll take it. Like I love that when guys want to talk about, their craft that way and more and more there are forwards and shooters and defensemen that understand it at a level goalies have sort of always understood theirs. Well, if being interested by that makes you a geek, then sign me up. Oh, I loved it. And it was, I think my I think favorite part of the season the so far way. was him walking me through that. That's really cool. And listen, I have a Bachelor of Science in Kinesiology and yet I still think that was the first vestibular reference on the PDO cast. So uh, kudos to you for dropping that. Let's take a little uh, break here. And then when we come back, we'll pick things right back up and keep chatting with Kevin Woodley. You're listening to the Hockey PDO cast streaming on the Sportsnet Radio Network. Breaking down the top stories in the NHL every day. The Jeff Merrick Show. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Back here in the hockey video cast with Kevin Woodley. Kevin, we did the first half on I don't even remember what because uh, we just we just talked fashion, we, like we did. Do we had like we had like biomechanics, vestibular function, yeah. balance, brain, body connection. Like we were, we got into the weeds about everything. We you know I did, I didn't say expected goals once in the first half. I actually think that's kind of good. It is nice, although I think we're gonna say it a lot here. Oh, okay. Okay. So we'll, we'll, a little bit of something for everyone, right? All right. Um, Zombie Frog asks, I've heard you discuss the value in having a goalie whose strength matches the type of shots their team allows. From that, from a, uh, from a standpoint of quote-unquote types of shots allowed, how many different types of defensive environments are there in the league? So I think there's a few obvious ones, right? There's teams who give up a lot off the rush. That's the, and, that's the and that's one. probably the most dangerous one yes. in terms of leaving your goalie Expose yeah. it out Rush dry, versus right? end zone, 100%. We think so much of, of bad defense looking like a horrible breakdown in coverage where both defensemen go behind the net and leave someone out in front and then they get a tap in. But in reality, that happens so little in today's game. It certainly happens. And if you watch the bad teams, like you'll see it. A it happens more, games, yeah, for certainly. sure. But most of the time now, the form that that kind of manifests itself in is not only giving up rush chances, but ones where they're like, immediately great A's, right? Where it's yeah. like either a two-on-one or a three-on-two, but the third guy is like coming in quick and completely uncovered and the goalie coaches, has to move across coaches the Coaches will talk about those are the ones we just gave them. Like yeah. when we talk about giving them goals, right? And so the teams that do that consistently, consistently are obviously going to struggle. And I, I'm with you. So it's the first sort of answer to that is rush versus end zone. If you give up too much off the rush, and I think the Oilers have become sort of like my new exhibit A in this, right? Like before the coaching change, they were dead last in high danger chances against the rush. 32nd out of 32 teams. And everybody wanted to fire their goaltenders into the sun, fire the goalie coach. Literally, they sent Jack Campbell to the minors. They make the coaching change. I'll give them a week grace period because that first road trip back east, they were still giving up those chances. Yep. Since then, um, and I probably should have updated this but since then i think they're second or third in the nhl in um rush chances against Mm -hmm. high danger rush chances against and so actually i'll correct myself since november 16th which is around i think around the right we're over two months now they're first right they went from dead last to first and guess what the goaltending looks a lot better now doesn't now listen Stuart skinner deserves credit um, for having gone through as bad as it was and just even mentally navigating that. And his game looks great right now. But I think the point is if you're dead last in rush chances against high danger, given up if you're, and it's not even that type of bad defense isn't always bad defensemen. It's quite often forwards making brutal decisions and trying to force things and turnovers at the blue line. Like we know what it looks like, no gaps, no back pressure, like those types of things. Like, I don't care who your goalie is. You're not surviving for a long period of time when when that's going on. So um, 
That's the first thing. Beyond that, honestly, within within the in zone structure, there are a lot of different types of plays we can look at. Like, so so that sort of eliminates breakaways for the most part. Although you can still have breakaways from the hash marks down off of some of the mistakes in zone that you talked about. Um, some of the st- other strengths and areas: Does your team give up laterals in the in zone and on the PK, or are they good at at eliminating seams? Particularly they, down low, right? I know that's something you spoke low about quite a bit plays with like are, Aiden yeah. Hill and Ilya Samsonov in the past. Screens. That's yeah. another one. Like like how do goalies manage screens and how, how does your team defend them? Are you really good at, are your guys really good at making sure they're in the lane the system says they're supposed to be so the goalie can trust he be, he's in the other lane? And when they're in that lane, do they eat pucks or do they get out of the way? Like those are, that's an important thing. Does your goalie a guy, is he a tall goalie that looks over screens and is good at not getting beat low despite that? Or is he a guy that has to look around screens? In that case, how do you defend it and does it fit that? Deflection sort of ties into that as well. Um, broken plays are a huge way to create offense, but some of that is, hey, do you, is your center low and boxing guys out? Are your defensemen good at clearing that area? Like how do you defend in front of the net? So um, those are some of the key, key ones. I mean, the other ones, rebounds, you know, to me, that's not so much is our, does our environment match our goalie, but you, you want to look at the goalies and see what types he's giving up. And he's, if he's giving up a ton of rebounds, hey, are we a defense that does a really good job of boxing out on second chances? Because if we don't, and he does, that might be a problem. If he's coming for a team where they were, it didn't matter that he gave up rebounds because they were exceptional at it. Um, and it's going to be a problem on your team, reconsider, right? Like I look at, uh, Casey DeSmith's been an excellent story here in Vancouver. Been fantastic. I think if I don't think he has enough starts to qualify for you know the NHL quote unquote leaderboard, but his nine eighteen would be top ten if he did. His environment is like twelve points better than Demko. I think it's a credit to how good a person he is in that room in terms of the extra work he does. Um, you know, out on the ice late, like teammates love him. They battle for him. And so the one thing when I look at his numbers, like he gives up a lot of second chances, especially early in the year. He's gotten better at sort of having things stick to him as the year's gone on. But early, there was a lot of stuff. Doesn't Not all rebounds are bad. He was really good at keeping them in front of him rather than kicking them off to the side for an open net. But they've also done a hell of a job in front of him. So does that maybe, if he was a guy you're looking at, and your team isn't as good at controlling that net front area on second chances, does that become more problematic? It's not meant to be a criticism. He's been exceptional. Just an example. Well, on your note on Demko, I believe the top two teams in the league in suppressing rush chances against this season, last I checked, were number one, the Vancouver Canucks, which is an amazing transformation from where they were at last year. They were like the Oilers for the first month and a half. And the Winnipeg Jets are number two, and they've gotten significantly better. And I've spoken a lot on this podcast about like some of the tactical stuff they've done from forward activity off the puck backtracking to how aggressive their defense have been in the neutral zone. But I think unsurprisingly, and, and not to take away from what Demko and Hellebuck have done because they've both been phenomenal, but they're number one and two in some order, both in terms of the betting market for the Vesna, but also I think on pretty much everyone's ballot at this point through 50 games. I think an interesting note for that, though, is you look at the game states those two teams are playing in, and maybe this is a bit of a chicken or the egg thing, right? Because if your goalie's good, chances are you're not going to give up very many bad goals early in the game, so you're going to give your team more time to score themselves, and so you're going to have a lead, and then you're going to be playing from from ahead, right, on the scoreboard. But it's interesting that both those two teams, I believe, are like first and third in terms of how often they've been trailing this season, and the Canucks in particular, like... They've been trailing for, I think, a matter of seconds over the past 10 games. Like, they just, they do not trail at all at this point. It's rather remarkable. And I'm sure that'll regress a little bit. But we know the the sort of the, the trade-off for score effects is when you're playing from behind, you sort of just throw everything on net, right? Because you kind of get into desperation mode where you're just trying to get as many pucks on net, trying to get back and claw back into a game. And so for a good goalie, that's a pretty good environment all of a sudden because you're getting a lot of the shots we don't typically see in a normal NHL game where it's a lot of stuff from the outside, from the point, just trying to get pucks on net, trying to hope something bounces in. And then the inverse is teams that are leading don't have the puck as much, but when they do, it's a counterattack rush Quality opportunity chance, the other way. Yeah. And so if you're a team that's trailing all the time, that's really tough because, okay, if you're the goalie, probably you already let in a couple goals to begin with. But also then the next shots you're going to face are probably going to be very, very dangerous ones off the rush. Whereas if you're a goalie on a team that's leading one nothing 2-1 in every game, I think you have a much better chance of preserving that. It's kind of this like 
self-fulfilling prophecy or positive feedback loop where yeah. it all feeds into itself, right? Although so, I got to say, like, like Halibut's numbers when they're up a goal are just off the charts. Well, sort of the Canucks is, though. There, there was a stat where I think they've lost one overtime game, but they have no regulation losses after leading through 40 minutes. The season, yeah, they're the like Columbus 20, game. They they blew a third period lead and lost, and that was the first like time. Like twenty seven yeah, and zero yeah, and some, one, yeah, something yeah. like that. Like it's just outrageous. You know, and the right? difference, actually, I think, actually, when I think about it now, the reason Demko's numbers up a goal aren't the same is because the Canucks tend to go up two or three, right? Like that's just the way they're doing it. Yeah. Whereas the Jets get up one, and it's the same type of environment. And, and like like again, Hellebuck's like they're absurd. Like most of his goals saved above expected, which is a high number. Come with the Jets up one a goal. And I think it's so, so Demko not being high in that chart, people look at it and compare it and be like, oh, why is Thatcher Demko like sixth on this? Well, because they're never up a goal. They always go up two or three, right? <laughs> like it's not his fault they're up by a couple. Yeah. The other thing that I've been thinking a lot about, and I know we had like, we've had these conversations during the postseason with Bobrovsky and, and everything, and, and it's not anything new, but I just, I've given it a lot of thought because goal save above expected is is obviously a very useful stat, right, in terms of t- giving you, like, environment and workload and, right. and sort of kind of paint, painting a picture of who's doing what with what. But I think one of its blind spots or one of its areas where you need to, like, think about it a bit more critically is a good goalie on a good team. Because what happens is, like, the Canucks and Jets have both done such a good job this year in terms of improving their defensive environment, and then they have these two really good goalies behind it, right? Right. In that case... If you're holding teams to like low expected goal value shots from outside the slot or, or, or not giving up those lateral plays down low, like 20 shots that are 0.1 expected goals, right? Yeah. That's two expected goals in accumulation over the course of a game. Whereas like five 0.4 shots come out to the same amount. Right. But I think the latter is clearly more likely to result in two actual goals scored, right? Because if you got five great A's, I think you're more likely to score two of them than shooting 20 very low percentage shots against Thatcher Demko right now. You're probably not going to score twice on that unless something weird happens or he's just off. Yeah, and that's so fair. You, you get to the same result, I guess, but the path you took to get there matters a lot. So I don't know what the right answer is there. Well, that's why I look. That's why I also and it, try and look at a, at adjusted save percentage because yeah. to me that's more of a shot by shot metric, and I can see what the expected save percentage is. Right, like you can, you can have a high expected save percentage, outperform it by a significant margin, and still end up at twenty goals saved above expected because you're seeing more of those outside shots. But it's going to show up in your expected save percentage. That's to me. That's also what's making Markstrom season so freaking remarkable. Well, do you want to talk about Markstrom now? Because he's on my topic. Well, list. I was, was going to say, like, because he's he's like he's up there with Hellebuck and Demko in terms of goals saved above expected. Actually, I think as of right now, as of this morning, because of last night, he dipped just below Thatcher Demko. I think on my list in the goals saved above expected, it's Demko one, Markstrom two, Connor Ingram three, and Con- and Connor Hellebuck four actually uh, by ClearSight Analytics. But when I look at the expected save percentage, like Markstrom's plus two point seven percent above an expected of eight seventy. 874. Like Demko's expected is slightly above league average at 892. Uh, Connor Hellebuck's expected is 898, close to 900. So that there, there you go right there. There's an indication of environment. Like they're almost, you know, in the case of Demko, like almost 15 points higher. And in the case of Hellebuck, almost 20 points higher just based on their baseline expected. And that's where you get into the sort of the quality versus the quantity. You can still end up at 20. There's no question who had the harder workload. Those are, I mean, I think people when they listen to the show and they hear you say these numbers are generally pretty surprised. Like I think everyone understands that league average, league average save percentage is a drop, right? It's like 903 or something right now. And we know that volume's down, quality of shots is up, shooters are better. Like we've, everyone understands those concepts. Yet still when you hear, all right, like I'd expect Jacob Markstrom to have an 874 save percentage. That, like, was, that is pretty shocking. Like that's like, if like he had, average is 885 right If now. he had an 874 save percentage right now, like people would be talking about him retiring. Yeah. Well, you know I mean, what I mean? Like, people weren't giving him credit when he was around a 900 raw. And when you looked at this, you're like, this guy's playing at a yeah, top five he's level. He's a 910 raw, I think, right now. Something around yeah. there, yeah. And, and again, his raw here isn't as high because at the end of the day, when ClearSight sorts shots, they... They map it out where that puck's released, where the two posts are, whether it has a chance to go in. And there are a lot of pucks that are headed wide that get saved that, I mean, 
listen, as at the goalie union, I wouldn't advocate for this, but the reality is they get counted as shots, and they were probably going six inches your, wide. You're gonna have your car. I'm gonna get goalie killed. They're gonna, right be, now. yeah, they're gonna take like There's someone's gonna knock like, at the door. Yeah, <laughs> Mr. Woodley, <laughs> we'd like to you. take your union card. The reality is the shots get overcounted. Goalies hate it when I say that, but clear sight sorts this pretty meticulously and so that's part of the reason why both the expected and what their actuals are will be lower than what people you know have come to expect it shocks people but 874 for markstrom like that is actually shocking that is shocking though you want it you want the shocker and i've i'm biased i love the kid i think he's a good goalie and so i throw this out there probably because i I think people don't give him a fair shake nobody touched him on waivers with an 863 Eric Comrie's expected was 850. I've never seen anything like that. That is absurdly low. Like, absurdly low. That kid just got bathed in high danger chances when he got in the net in Buffalo. Yeah, Markstrom has been excellent, both by those numbers and also, I think, just by raw ones. Like, even a 9-10 save percentage in today's game is good. Uh, Sportlogic has him at a plus 13 goal save above expected, which is near the league leaders, as you mentioned. I think we all expected Calgary to decline and regress defensively after the coaching change of the offseason. I I think what's happened here... I got it wrong. I I actually thought that you retain some of that identity and DNA. I thought they'd keep some more than they have. I didn't realize they'd make the changes they have in terms of how they defend it. And that takes time. We saw it with Edmonton, right? Like, you change how you defend system-wise... And now all of a sudden you got, we talked earlier about reads, Dimitri, like and how goalies are trying to read what shooters are doing. They're, all of those reads are also based on what they expect their defensemen to do. I can't tell you how many times I've sat down for a video session with a goalie, an NHL goalie, and they're like, it's not about what the forward's trying to do. It's about I know I can do this because I trust my defenseman to be here and take that away so I can focus on this. And when everybody's learning something new, man, like how do you read off the potential for your guy to do it the way he did it last year versus the way you're supposed to do it this year. And even with subtle changes, you can have wild swings that way. And so knowing now that they've made those types of adjustments, I shouldn't be surprised that 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 environment dipped. I guess let's spin this forward then and talk a little bit about fit. And also, yeah, I had the question earlier, which I think kickstarted this conversation. It's so long. We get one question per half-hour segment. Forget what happened or the order of it, but it was essentially talking about finding the right goalie for the right team in front of them in terms right. of what they're giving up and curating that accordingly, right? So, And there is no perfect answer. Like, of course. There's no exact. But I can tell you getting Eddie Lack as a guy who didn't retreat off the rush and putting him in Carolina, a team that when they did give up chances were almost always off the rush, and then saying, hey, we want you to get outside of your crease and skate backwards when skating was never the strength of his game. Like that type of stuff you could see in the numbers and in the eye test was never going to work, right? So there, there's a fine line in between things that obviously aren't going to translate and things that like we can at least make educated guesses on, but there is no perfect. I'm not sure if you still feel this way or you think this is fair or applies, but I, I just remember like, and maybe what it's two years ago now, three years ago now when Markstrom was a, a Vesna finalist and he had a fantastic season under Daryl Sutter. Right. I think those were a lot of game environments where the volume was pretty low. I yep. always thought of him as being someone who you wanted to keep stimulated in game. That's how he I was felt, in Vancouver. I, I felt that, yep. that that brought the best out of him, right? But at the same time, though, you want to keep the volume in game high, but I, re- I really think you need to manage his workload throughout a season because I find when you play too many games in a yep. row, discipline goes out the window, both in terms of like going to try and play pucks and save selection and everything. And so it's this weird thing where you want to find him in a spot where he's going to get a healthy amount of work but not have to play that many games. And generally, there aren't very many teams that check those boxes because if they're going to rely on him to make a lot of saves in a game they're pro- and he's making $6 million, he's probably going to need to play 60 to 65 games. And then all of a sudden, yeah. I start tugging on my collar and getting a little bit, of, bit worried. Now, if a team was inqu- acquiring him, I know he has two years left on his deal after this one, but if a team like, let's say, New Jersey or Carolina, although I'm more skeptical on that one, would acquire him in season they're obviously making a push for this year, right? So I think anything beyond that is like, all right, we'll deal with that when the time comes. I'm kind of curious for your fit there in terms of whether you like that from a situation perspective, because obviously both teams, I think they're literally 31st and 32nd in in team save percentage so far, Uh, the Devils and the Hurricanes are. And so it makes sense why they keep being linked to him. But I'm kind of curious for your take on the actual player in that environment for okay those. without like doing like the detailed breakdown of what they give up specifically and whether it fits his strengths and weaknesses because as good as he's been this year there still are um strengths and weaknesses to every goalie right and for him one of the things that 
you know, if you want a counter argument to the Vesna conversation of him being, you know, leading the league or being second in the league and goals saved above expected, it's that uh, his numbers take a hit on some of the low danger stuff. Like he does give up goals that you want your guys to stop. And those tend to at times be, well, not a time, like, those are tough ones, right? They hurt a bench. They, they, they a psychological. Yeah, there, sure. there's and and we've, we've seen the math on what happens when you give those up, right? Like teams tend not to win those games. Um, so, I like to me out of those two, I'd pick New Jersey. Yeah, because he's going to be busier. Yeah, he's going to be asked to do more. Like if you're going to spend six million dollars on goaltending, it's because you need him to stop bullets in his teeth, and that's when Markstrom's at his best. Now, can he do it the other way? I know there are teams out there that are trying to figure that out, and they're looking at those Daryl Sutter years because he'd never had to before that, and it was an adjustment for him, but I thought he figured it out. Mm. I still think you get your best out of him when he's busy, and Lord knows he's going to be busy in New Jersey. To me, if I was picking, that would be the fit. Well, we spoke about this, I think, last time I had you on, so we don't need to rehash all the details, but I'll give you SportLogic's sort of profile of what New Jersey, what, what you'd expect from New Jersey, which is offensively they're 22nd in offensive zone time so they're like they're having the puck in the offensive zone less frequently as a team and they're giving up a lot as a return off the rush the other way right and they're actually like they're suppressing offensive zone time in their own zone quite well for the other team but when they're giving up shots they're being real graded as really high high danger ones now part of that i think and i think they give up a ton of inner slot shots according to sport logic is because their goalies have been quite bad, I think, at managing rebounds as well. And so when the initial shot comes in, the following one is generally a very high-danger one from the inner slot, and it's winding up in the back of the net, and so the other team isn't having to spend 50 seconds in the offensive zone for that shift because it's in and out pretty quickly. Um, So I think Markstrom obviously would make a lot of sense. Now it's a pretty big commitment for a a guy who's, I think, going to be 34 years old next week for two more seasons at that money, but... Just for the rest of the season, I think it's a very interesting combination. Yeah, and it just and you know, like I said, haven't been able to dig into all those numbers and match them up. Um, you know, some of mine differ obviously from Sport Logic, who doesn't do slot line passes or or traffic um, the way that these guys do. I just like generally speaking, like that feels like a team that needs their goalie to be a hero a lot of times and. I was, for lack of a better term, like that's kind of when Markstrom's at his best. Well, I've, I've they messaged, need an acrobat. Sometimes. I've messaged you about this anecdotally to my untrained eye. I genuinely feel like the Devils goalies do not practice moving side to side. Yeah, sometimes you message me and it's like I don't look at the play and I'm like, man, that's a really tough play. I know, that's but there's really times play. where a player's coming down the wing and it's like. Uh, the pump fake, so the pump fake to, to the it. ice and the wrap is 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 such a tough play. You have to actually play it different now. And but you're right, they're not playing it uh, different. They're, they're, they're moving beat. over your geriatric speed from from post to post. Come on, it's Kevin. A, I know you're, you're trying the, to win back your union card. But. It's the biggest rotation in the game for a goaltender. Is if you if and this is the question would be should they be squaring up on the guy coming down the wing? If you stay square on him, by the time he gets to say. Let's, let's not go all the way to the bottom of the circle, but even into that area between sort of the bottom of the circle and the face-off dot. Like if you're squared up to the face-off dot or up to the boards and then you have to get back to your post. Like the only thing, other, the only other rotation that's a bigger rotation and, and having to get your body turned to load up a push, like that rotation is what takes the time is if you were to actually square up on the goal line, which would be absurd. And that's why we've seen a lot more of teams overlap, take that outside leg have it outside the post so you give yourself additional short side coverage. But as the play gets to the bottom of the circle off the rush, purposely flatten out your backside so you don't have to make a rotation. And then the skate's loaded outside the post. You're still short side high covered because you're outside the post and you have that additional sort of angle chopped down. And you've basically cheated for the pump fake wrap and it's an easier push across. Unless you do that and they haven't, that is a massive rotation, and it typically is going to look – it's not going to look pretty. This I guarantee is, you they work on side-to-side movement. I know is, they're goalie coach. I guarantee you they work. This is like one of those memes where you're, like, giving me all of this, like, scientific information about I'm just trying tor- to cover for the goalies, right? rotation yeah. and everything, and then I'm like, goalie, move slow. <laughs> I'm going to, like, literally have to, like, bring you on the ice and show you how hard that movement is. It's – 
you know, I'm I sure I will not ex- be good at it. The example, and the reason I I use the example, they 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 coined the phrase in in Calgary. It was actually Dustin Wolf that started. Was one, he was getting burned short side high by tucking inside his post off these rush chances. Because as soon as it got in tight, he was anticipating the potential for a wrap, and he was going into a reverse. So he was tucking inside his post to seal short side high. Well, Dustin Wolf isn't huge. And guys were looking for that tuck, and then they were tucking it under the bar by his ear. And so he had to get more angle, had to get more depth. And the only way to get more depth without leaving, and Wolfie's as quick as they come, the only way to get more depth and still be able to get back to the other post if you got faked to the ice was to hedge that rotation. And they came up with this technique, and they actually called it the panda. And the reason they called it the panda is because it looks like, because his butt basically goes right against the post, so it's one of the goalie coaches. I think it might have been... Jordan Sigalette um, said it looks like a panda rubbing its ass against bamboo. So <laughs> my point would be it's a difficult enough play that just for that one specific chance, the goalie union has come up with a new way of managing it just to make sure we give ourselves a chance on what is an otherwise difficult play. But because they haven't there or they're not using that move, yeah, it looks because it, it's a hell of a rotation and it's tough to get across. Stop sending me wraparound, pump fake wraparound goals, Dimitri. I'm going to do it next time it happens, which probably will be in the first period of the next game of the Devils. But, uh, Kevin, I will let you plug some stuff on the way out. Is there anything you want people to check out? The usual oh, man, are we done already? I didn't even get to talk about load management and, and, the, and the Colorado Avalanche we'll have you on again. sitting Alexander Georgiev for a game completely rather than dressing him as a backup to get him more the Habs, rest. The Habs have started sending, by the way, the Avalanche. Big fans of the PDO cast. I know a lot of people in the organization listen to the show, so I'm not taking any credit for it because they're smart in their own right. But that was a heck of a move on their part. We've been, I've been, we, that's one of my sort of like, when are we going to get to this for years? And I had Rick Tockett tell me the other day when we started discussing it, that's a hell of an idea. We should be doing that. The Montreal Canadiens have been sending the third guy, and you know, they're one of the few teams that's both blessed. It's kind of blessing and a curse having three guys, but yeah. also trying to figure out how to play them. They've been sending the third guy to the next city to prepare for, Come for the on. game. So, yep. I did not know this. Yes. I now have new ammunition for my column tomorrow because one of the things that Rick Talk had said to me was, don't they send pitchers to the next city in Absolutely. baseball? Absolutely. Yeah, they do, Rick. Or say if you've got back-to-back games, Casey DeSmith said, we had a back-to-back where it was here in Vancouver and then the next night was there in Calgary. He's like, I'm playing the one in Calgary. That was brutal travel. That's my job. I'm not complaining. But is there any need to put Demko through the same travel and still go through all his warm-up routine just to sit on the bench that night? Like, there are ways to... The goalies don't want it. They all want to play every game, and they want to be part of the team, and they don't want to be seen as, like, needing load management. But, yeah, hey, this is... We, we just... We got our whole next session already set up, Dimitri. Kevin, they're kicking us out of here. Everyone go follow Kevin as in goal in goal magazine. Uh, thank you for coming on. I... Before we started, I was like, I was just doom scrolling Twitter. I felt horrible. I was like, I don't even know if I can do a show today because... I told you I needed coffee because I was exhausted and just feeling wiped from everything. And we just geeked out and yeah so hopefully we help to other people you so helped just... keep my mind off of stuff for 50 minutes i enjoyed it entertainment value was great hopefully we did the same for the listeners thank you kevin we're ha- going to have you on again soon thank you to everyone for listening to the hockey pdo cast streaming on the sports night radio network